what's really overblown is the extinction risk. I don't see any plausible path of AI leading to human extinction. Maybe there's some ways that humans will make humans extinct, but this idea of sentient AI, uh, uh, it seems very implausible to me. Welcome to Ask More of AI, the podcast looking at the intersection of AI and business. I'm Clara Shai, CEO of Salesforce AI, and today I'm excited to be here with Dr. Andrew Ng. Andrew is a world-renowned AI researcher and founder of DeepLearning.ai, as well as Coursera. Thanks so much for being here, Andrew. It's good to see you online, Clara. And I think uh, just saw you a few weeks ago at the Salesforce event. It was fun to catch you in person. Well, and congratulations to you on your Time 100 honor. So, so well-deserved. Oh, you too. I think uh, it is good to see you and everyone there. You joined the Stanford faculty in 2002. Now, if we could go back those 20 years with you, what were some of the research questions that, that you were investigating then in the lab? And you know, were there sparks back then of what was to come? So back then, 2002, I was very focused on reinforcement learning research. Uh, my PhD thesis from UC Berkeley was using reinforcement learning to fly helicopters. And so I was continuing to work on a lot of robotics research. Um, and that's how I wound up later, years later, working on deep learning and neural networks, which was I could get the robots to be controlled, to fly upside down, have a robot dog climb rocks or whatever. What I could not do back then was get my robots to see. And so I shifted a lot of my attention to building neural networks because I could get them to move quite agilely, but perceiving the world and reacting to the world, that was really hard. And so that's how I wound up shifting from reinforcement learning research to deep learning and perception research. And I remember, when did I organize a, a workshop at the NeurIPS conference, at that time called NIPS, now NeurIPS, um, titled Towards Human Level AI? And it was a very controversial topic. People thought, what, human level AI? Why even talking about that? But that was a fun early discussion um, from, you know, I think Yana couldn't spoke at that conference, that, that workshop that I co-organized as well. A bunch of people were there um, about what the long-term future of AI could be. So fun times. So. so incredible. So even back then, you know, and was that an aspiration for you? Did you ever think that in your lifetime and career that we could achieve AI that could pass the Turing test and, and feel like it was human? I was definitely very motivated by the question for a lot of my career. So you know, I think when deep learning was just starting to take off again, um, that's when I organized that. Well, around that time was when I organized that workshop. And even when I started um, the Google Brain team, a lot of my motivation back then, in hindsight, you know, maybe uh, uh, it turned out to be harder than, than I thought, than many of us thought. But at that time, my pitch to Google um, was, let's take neural networks and scale them out really, really big, and then we'll make a lot of progress in AI that way. And while positive that recipe turned out to be correct, you know, scaling out models really, really big, that, that worked. I think the path to actually achieving human-level AI or really artificial general intelligence, or however you want to call it, that, that, that turned out to be really difficult path. I think we knew it'd be difficult, but you know, that, uh, maybe it turned out to be, uh, maybe when I was younger, I was more naive and thought it'd be easier than it turned out to be. And it turned out to be 
you know, right, even though it hasn't been an easy road. I mean, I just imagine back then, a lot of people refer to it now as the AI winter, right? It's, it wasn't the hot, cool thing that everybody wanted to jump on. Was it, was it difficult to, to raise money? Was it difficult to attract graduate students? I mean, how did you persist and continue to stay so focused and committed to AI during those years? Yeah, it's funny you put it that way. <clears throat> I feel like I'm, I think I, it feels like I missed the AI winter. Um, and I know, I know that there was an AI winter, but as an AI insider working on this stuff for the last 20 years, what I saw was rapid year-on-year progress over what was possible the year before. And I know that broader public, there were hype cycles that then died down, neural networks were hot, and then they were not, and then they were hot again. So I know that, I, I, I know that factually there was an AI winter. But as an insider, if you look at the actual progress, there wasn't actually much of a winter in terms of what AI could do. And I saw my software, my collaborative software, it got better pretty consistently year after year. And so maybe this makes me sound really dumb, I don't know. But frankly, it feels like I just worked through the AI winter without really being bothered by it. Uh, so I was a happy camper all this time, just you know, working away at AI. It's incredible, right? Because it's because of the work that you and your lab and so many others have done that we are out of the winter. But it sounds like from from within the depths of the research lab, there there was no winter, and you were continuing to to um, make new findings, which is which is fantastic. Oh yeah, and I feel like if you look at the research progress, it's just been getting better every year. I think the societal perception has massive swings, but the actual how well does this stuff work? It made it just made progress every year for the last twenty years. Isn't that so interesting, though? I mean that how something is from the inside can be so different than how it's perceived on the outside. And just to, for us to always keep that in mind when we're working on big, audacious goals. Yeah, you know, there's actually one, I, I, I learned this lesson um, at Coursera as well, when I think uh, there, there was a year, there was, was it 2011 or 2012, that the New York Times or someone declared there's a year of the massive open online course. And and I feel like what I see when you're developing technology, what it often feels like is every year is, you know, I'm going to make up a number. Every year is like 50% better than it was the last year. And so when you work on the technology, you see this smooth exponential curve. It is exponential because it's getting 50% better a year every year or something. But it turns out that um, to people that aren't actively working on it, that 50% year-on-year growth, that looks like an exponential curve. And people go, wow, this came out of nowhere. But what it actually feels like working on it is, yeah, I've been working on this for five years and it's been getting a little bit better every year. Um, so what's the big deal? But there are these moments when due to social dynamics, uh, I was working on online education for years before Coursera, but I think finally we hit that product market fit. I saw, oh yeah, the feature is now a bit better than the year before, but there was a phase transition of hitting a much stronger product market fit and then capturing the imagination of a lot of people, which is why then sometimes people go, oh, it came out of nowhere. I find that when I'm a insider work on the field, I'm not always, I'm, I don't think I'm actually that good at predicting when it'll capture societal awareness because I see, yeah, it's just getting better every year. So it's, it's, it's an interesting lesson for me to try to take the you know outside of you and, 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 and not only the inside of you because that affects how we should think about growing our businesses as well and the market timing of what we do. It is, but I think ultimately it's, it's really the power of, of compounding. And I talk to this all the time with, with my kids, right, is, you know, you, you, you keep at it. You get 1% better 
at piano or math or soccer every day. And on the outside, it doesn't seem like it's getting much better. But then all of a sudden, you perform your piano piece several years later, and everyone's like, wow, how did that person get so good? And I think that that's true for any type of endeavor that requires persistence and patience and multi-years of, of work. Yeah. In fact, I often wonder about what is actually creativity or acts of genius. I suspect a lot of really creative acts is tiny little increments, but stacked up over a long time so that outsiders don't even understand how it was done. And that is very creative. I remember, I think, um, Gary Kasparov, after he was defeated by Deep Blue chess, uh, chess, former chess world grandmaster, I think he said that he found the AI system's moves very creative. And I thought that was incredible. But to me, sometimes the most creative acts, I think, are a reflection that, you know, we just don't know how this came about. And if we knew how it came about through the sweat and hard work of building one little brick at a time until suddenly there's this magical cathedral. That, that, that's what creativity sometimes feels like. Yeah, it's like so. a catch-all phrase. That's, that's very interesting. Um, so I want to also go back to, to helicopters. So, I mean, reinforcement learning is not ex mutually exclusive with neural networks and deep learning. And so what, what was the specific aha moment for you and what were the specific areas that you were looking into at first and then how did you transition to deep learning and neural networks? Yeah, so for my PhD thesis at uh, UC Berkeley, um, I actually you know, had created my own reinforcement learning algorithm to train a very, very small neural network to fly a helicopter. Um, and I think that uh, at that time, reinforcement learning was a very academic subject without, with relatively few practical applications. So when I released these videos of a helicopter, flying really well, you know, kind of sing the air, kind of rock solid, right? Better, more stable than a human pilot could probably fly it. That was viewed as a big success by the reinforcement learning community. And not, not many people know, um, uh, it was actually a very, very tiny neural network, embarrassingly small. We could count the number of neurons, probably fewer neurons that have fingers, I don't remember anymore. Um, but then the reason I transitioned to deep learning, it was, one of the books that I was very motivated by was a book titled On Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins. Um, and Jeff Hawkins was uh, uh, had written this groundbreaking book that raises theory, um, controversial to this day, that maybe a lot of intelligence may be due to one learning algorithm. And I thought, if human intelligence is due to a thousand different learning algorithms, maybe evolution evolved a thousand different things with different business brain to do, then how on earth could we ever build that? Well, it's going to take forever to f figure out a thousand algorithms. But there was this fascinating theory that if there's one or a very small number of organizing principles for intelligence, where it's a simple algorithm plus a lot of data, then maybe within our lifetimes, we could figure out a lot of what that is. Um, and so, I was very motivated by that. And in fact, the early days of when I was leading the Google Brain team, um, primary mission I set for the Google Brain team was I said, let's make really, really big neural networks. So fortunately, that worked out well. A lot, lot of neural networks, very large networks with a lot of data. Fortunately, that part of the recipe worked out well. There was one other thing that I was excited about back then, which turned out you know, not to be the optimal short-term direction, it turns out, which was um, I was very focused on unsupervised learning, learning from unlabeled data because a lot of human learning, a lot of human infant learning, you and I both are kids, 
no matter how loving a parent you are, we're not going to point out a thousand costs to kids. They just don't have that patience. And so kids actually do a lot of learning by wandering around the world and observing and figuring stuff by themselves, not by parents labeling every single object over and over. So it's very motivated by this idea of learning from massive amounts of data. And we did that in the early days at, at, at Google, on the Google Brain team. Um, and I think to this day, unsupervised learning is important. It's actually how large language models now are trained. But I think I got the timing of that wrong. And in hindsight, what really worked a decade ago was supervised learning. There's only more gradually now that you know there's much more self-taught learning or self-supervised learning or unsupervised learning that's driving more progress. You were just ahead of your time. Um, and of course, now reinforcement learning has made a comeback in a big way, right? And, and reinforcement learning from human feedback. And maybe you, know, you weren't so wrong all along and all these different pieces coming together. Yeah, although I find that, I, I, I find that timing is really tricky, you know? I, I, I don't I don't I don't give myself credit for when I got the timing that far off. I mean one thing I think about um when um Apple released the iPhone, Steve Jobs got the market timing right, right? So, well iPhone took off. Um but Apple also had released the Apple Newton much earlier, which is a stylus tablet, handheld with a screen. But I think the ecosystem just wasn't ready to support that. So the Apple Newton failed as a product because, you know, Wi-Fi and touchscreens, the ecosystem just wasn't there, but the iPhone got it right. So you, you actually get a lot of points in today's world. I mean, it's actually, if you can get the market timing right, which is really tricky, it, it I don't know, I, I wish, it just makes a huge difference. So I, 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 I'm trying to put a lot more thought as well into, you know, Long-term research is great. We should do long-term research that won't pay off for 20, 30 years. But in terms of taking things a product, that market timing, I try to think a lot about how to do better at it. That's a good point. And I mean, you just look at the success of, of ChatGPT and how so much of that was really dependent on the availability of powerful GPUs and the ability to, to do this large amount of, of compute for training and for inference. Uh, but then also, you know, very practical things that they did, like reinforcement learning at scale, right, with all these hired labelers. Um, and so maybe it's, it's certainly a big part of the timing, but then a big part of, of smart decisions that are made. I think so. OpenAI team, OpenAI has done great. I feel like, uh, I'll say one thing. I find that a lot of people are saying, boy, ChatGPT came out of nowhere. And I don't think that's true. Um, I think for a lot of people, it came out of nowhere. I didn't realize I did this until uh, a couple of weeks ago when a friend points out to me. But it turns out that in September 2020, so a little more than two years before ChatGPT was released, in my weekly newsletter, The Batch, um, I actually wrote that I felt GPT-3 was pointing to a significant way of how we change text processing. And I wrote then, I forgot that I wrote this, but someone points out to me that more than two years before ChatGPT, I actually wrote publicly um, and still on the website that I felt GPT-3 was changing the way we're processing text, that scaling up will improve it even further. And the AI funds were already seeing entrepreneurs um, use ChatGPT in new ways. So, and I know I wasn't the only one. Some of my insider friends in NLP, you know, attending NLP conferences, like it was clear something was in the air. I don't think any of us knew it'd be exactly ChatGPT, but by the time of ChatGPT 3, it was already pretty clear something weird was going on. So I think sometimes when you're close to tech, you can make predictions even a couple of years ahead of time. Uh, and, and I don't know, these days I make maybe so I'm still trying to think now 
what are the predictions I have for a couple of years in the future? And who knows, I'll, I'll be more or less right this time around. But it's, but it's a fascinating space where what will happen in the next couple of years. Yeah. Seems, seems like, yeah. And it ties back to our discussion earlier, right, about what seems on the outside like something coming out of nowhere, a stroke of creative genius was actually years in the making. And the closer you are to it, the more you realize that it can happen and the better you are at being able to predict you know, that, that, big, that big moment. And a lot of the, the disruptive changes is, is, I think many, sometimes people close to the tech, you know, really had a sense for quite some time. You've spent a lot of time in your career in academia, right, at Stanford and at Berkeley before then. You've also worked at large companies Baidu, founding the Google Brain Team. You're also an entrepreneur. You co-founded Coursera. Now you have DeepLearning.ai. What do you think the role is of you know large companies versus startups versus academia in furthering AI research? And is this changing? I think it's all important. I, I think all of these organizations are important. Um, you know, from a business standpoint, I find that many large companies um, have a huge distribution advantage, which is why when a company figures out technology, companies can often be fantastic at getting it to their user base, uh, even if they're you know, not necessarily the first to, to market the product. So this is why, even though some of the large cloud companies didn't invent a lot of the LM technology or something, I think many of them would do fine selling LM large language model or generative AI APIs. Um, I think different companies are different, and some companies are really good at being highly nimble and innovative, but 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 many are not. And then I think uh, I really like I, I really enjoy the breathtakingly fast decision making of startups. The ability to, you know, I don't know on a on a Saturday morning, right? Make a call, send an email, and then ship a product on Tuesday. I mean, it's just it's just very difficult, more difficult to do that in most big companies. But the breathtaking decision-making speed of startups means this pace of iteration. Um, it's been interesting. I've, I've spoken with some people that have been big companies for 20 years, and sometimes they'll say, oh, Andrew, we move really fast. And they are fast maybe relative to their frame of reference, but um, I find that the fast-moving startup CEOs, even I've been surprised, you know, actually uh, with uh, CEOs, very good CEOs I know of startups that got on the call with a phone call and within 60 minutes, they made a major engineering architecture decision, right? And they go, wow, they just make that call in 60 minutes and they did, and it was a good decision even. Um, and I think academia, I know that there's a theme that maybe academia doesn't have the massive compute resources and, and but I think even though some types of research needing massive capital investments are very difficult to do in academia, um, there's so much work to do, you know, in terms of basic research. I see right groups at Stanford, Berkeley, many other institutions doing really cutting-edge work as well, even though I guess academia tends not to have the, you know, marketing engines that the big companies have. So sometimes a really good work in academia doesn't receive as much attention. But I think it's all important. I think I think that all, 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 there's so much going on in AI. All of this feels very additive. In fact, and I, I've been I've been following some of your work at at uh, at um, Salesforce as well, Clara. And I feel like I don't know. Do you want to say anything about that? I, I would love any feedback from you. I mean, we're we're very committed. We're very excited building on on the work of uh, one of your former students, Richard Socher, who was the founder of, of Salesforce Research ten years ago. 
And we're really excited about our, you know, our new Einstein co-pilot that we're working on and, and just bringing AI into the flow of work for, of all of our existing products. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, chatting with uh, uh, Silvio and some Salesforce engineers over the last few months, um, I think I was in Palo Alto and randomly ran to a group of Salesforce engineers and wound up chatting with them. But I think, you know, the fact that Salesforce is right training your own large language models and thinking through the entire stack of, you know, software, hardware, use cases, I think uh, given given your very large user base, it feels like, yeah, I, I'm imagining, uh, uh, you know, the high degree of excitement and all the things you could do. It is a thrilling time, and our customers have been great collaborators with us on this too. And we're, I feel like we're we're literally building out the future of technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you think are the most interesting questions in AI research today? So AI has become so diverse and so rich <clears throat> that the field is not going in one direction; it's going simultaneously in a hundred different directions. Um, and I think it's good that lots of people have lots of opinions about what research to do. But maybe just to share with you some, some things I'm excited about. Um, I remain excited about unsupervised learning. If, if, you know, if I had plenty of time and didn't have right, like full-time work, I would find it fascinating to just go and do research on um, unsupervised learning, uh, 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 which could be, which is well aligned with the current um, ways that we're pre-training large language models and large vision models and large multimodal models. But I feel like there's still something missing. I feel like the, our algorithms is, is something something is off, especially for the vision models. The way that we're training large vision models, you know, it, it feels like a, a Google Brain team, my former team, had published a transformer paper and vision transformers takes images and turns them into tokens, turns into numbers, and shoves them into the transformer. But that's, that whole tool chain, I think there's a lot of room for improvement, uh, even though you know large vision models, large vision transformers are working quite well. So I think there's a lot of exciting work there to be done. Another side I find exciting is agents. Um, you know, <clears throat> a lot of people, this, this is one of the many wild west areas of uh, AI where you can prompt an LM to say, hey, I would like you to whatever, help me find competitors of this company. How do you do that? Then has the OM decide, well, I'm gonna you know, search online for the competitors, visit the competitors' websites, whatever. But if an OM decide for itself what actions to take in a sequence and then to take that sequence of actions. It's an exciting idea. It's frankly not working that well. I, I would not use this stuff in production right now, frankly, but this is one of the several Wild West areas that, that I find exciting. Um, and then also data-centric AI. I think for the short term, practical, let's just get stuff to work. Uh, how do we systematically engineer the data um, uh, you know, to deploy? That's exciting. Oh, and then I'll, I'll make a prediction about the future, always dangerous, but I see a lot of excitement about um, edge applications. I know a lot of the attention is on the cloud right now. Um, and maybe, and, and some of you may say, hey, why is Andrew pushing 1970s technology? Who writes desktop applications anymore? But I feel like the smaller OEMs, the one to 10 billion parameter OEMs, they run fine on, you know, say a, a modern laptop, maybe with a good GPU. And I think there are privacy, maybe latency advantages um, uh, to, to large language models and large vision models running at the edge. So, how to get that work? What are the use cases? Um, actually, my, my team AI funds is spending some time thinking that through. But these are some of the directions I'm excited about. 
But I think the AI co co community collectively has 100 or more than 100 directions. I think it's fantastic to see this very diverse set of research topics. I'm curious, what, what, what are you excited about, Clara? I am excited about a lot of those things, too. I mean, what we just announced at Dreamforce around the Einstein Copilot Studio. And, you know, I think that agents in general could be wild, wild west. But when it's in, a, in the context of a secure enterprise environment where you have trusted data, trusted workflows, um, checks and balances and guardrails in place, I think there's a lot of promise to being able to, to use the agents for, for decisioning and for actions. Oh, cool. Yeah. I, I, too, am very interested in the edge. I mean, especially given what Meta announced with their, their new AR glasses. I mean, imagine running a large language model you know, on your phone, connected to to the glasses, that could be very interesting. Um, I guess the other thing that's interesting to me is, you know, as we we train on these large data sets and in some cases proprietary data sets, what is how do we combine novelty with train with original training set? Are we going to just all converge to the same answers to the similar questions? And what's the role of new ideas, new creativity? in continuously expanding the corpus of, of knowledge. Yeah, that would be interesting. It, it, it's one of those things, you know, creativity is very hard to define. I don't know of any definition of creativity. Um, I don't know of a mathematical, sorry, I don't know of a mathematical test of creativity, which is why some things one person will perceive as creative, someone else will not. But it would be very nice if, um, yeah, it'll be interesting. It says, how, how do you pre pre prevent collapse, right? If all the text on the internet, or most of the text is generated by LMs and LMs training on their own data, that seems like we could lead to a mode collapse situation, unless we can get them to be somehow creative and ingest new sources of knowledge to generate new information rather than just regurgitate old information. Somehow humans can do that, um, but can LMs do that? I don't know, it, but it's certainly be interesting to try. It would be fascinating if in the future, we're going to have LMs, you know, ingest and generate new text so that this worry of uh, the text is completely polluted by auto-generated text and we have, you know, mode collapse as it trains on its own data. Right. This is exciting to think about. Yeah, exactly. Um, so a lot of people, rightfully so, including our own team here, here at Salesforce, we're focused on the risks that come with AI and making sure that we mitigate those risks. You've said before, you know, some of the risks are overblown. Can you talk more about that? What do you think is real? What should we do about it and versus what do you think is overblown? So what I think is real, AI has well-documented instances of bias, fairness, um, unfairness, uh, inaccuracies causing harm. Um, so I feel like those are real risks that, you know, we, many people are working on to address. Uh, the good news about that is that AI is much safer. In fact, we were to prompt a large language model today to try to get it to say, give you detailed instructions to commit an illegal act or something. Um, you can still kind of do it, but it's much harder now than six months or 12 months ago. 12 months ago, for a lot of LMs, you can ask it to give you detailed instructions to do something bad. They would just tell you today, most LMs much more likely to refuse to, to give that. So I think we're improving a lot on safety. Probably need more progress on bias is difficult, but again, making progress. Um, uh, so I think those are some of the real risks. And also inaccuracy, you know, maybe an obvious use case would be if a driver assistance 
decision makes the wrong decision, it could lead to a car crash. And so I think, um, I think fortunately, AI systems are getting much better. Uh, what's really overblown is the extinction risk. I was pretty, I was, I was surprised when, you know, uh, collaborators I deeply respect, including Jeff Hinton and Yosha Benjo, signed a petition um, uh, calling for, um, you know, paying attention to and guarding against AI leading to human extinction risk. I think that's really overblown. I don't see any plausible path of AI leading to human extinction. Maybe in some ways that humans will make humans extinct, but this idea of sentient AI, uh, uh, it seems very implausible to me. Um, and in fact, because because I, I think, I hope that within our lifetimes, we'll build AI smarter than any human. I hope we'll get there within our lifetimes. Um, uh, but humanity has lots of experience steering things more powerful than any single person, including corporations and nation states. Corporations and nation states are much more powerful than any single person, but will for the most part manage to control them, and I don't really doubt that will manage to control AI as well. Um, and so if you look at the real extinction risk that face humanity, you know, things like the next pandemic, fingers crossed, or maybe climate change leading to massive depopulation of parts of the planet or much lower probability, um, another asteroid wiping us out like it did to dinosaurs, much lower probability of that. But I think our response to any of these real risks to humanity um, will deeply involve AI. So if you want humanity to survive and thrive for the next thousand years, rather than slowing down AI as some have proposed, I would rather make AI go as fast as possible. What would it take to create an AI that is smarter than humans? So I think AI systems today are already smarter than any single person on specific dimensions. Uh, we've had AI much better than any of us at adding numbers for a long time, and now it's much better than any of us at you know, remembering lots of facts and answering factual questions about esoteric corners. The, the, the weird thing about benchmarking human knowledge, humans and AI, this goal of AGI, artificial general intelligence, which I think is a great goal, uh, um, is the digital path to intelligence, AI, has turned out to be very different than the biological or the human path to intelligence. They're just good at very different things. And so this definition of artificial general intelligence, the most widely accepted definition is um, AI that could do any intellectual task that a human can. But we're forcing an AI to do any intellectual task that a human can, and forcing the digital intelligence, which is wonderful, to do everything that the biological path can. It's just a really tall bar for digital intelligence to take. I hope we'll get there. I don't see any fundamental reason why we can, can't get there at some point, but I think that will take decades, and we'll still need um, new technologies that have yet to be invented. And I realized something recently. I know that there are some people that think, oh, we'll reach AGI in three to five years. I realized something recently, which is uh, some of those groups, you know, have a non-standard definition of AGI. And I think, well, sure, if you redefine AGI, we could totally get there in three years. I was chatting with an economist friend. He said, well, with that definition of AGI, I think we got there 30 years ago. But, but I think by the original definition of AGI, I think we're still pretty far away. Yeah, I've heard many different definitions. Uh, very interesting. You recently had a clone made of your voice. Tell us about that process and what what happened from that experiment. 
Yeah, so um, Speech Lab is a is an AI fund uh, portfolio company, and I was chatting with uh, the CEO Seamus one day, and I kind of commented that I was using some of the commercial voice cloning systems, and it just didn't do that well on my speech because I have a non-standard accent. I think if I sounded, you know, I, I think uh, for average, uh, uh, well, typical American accent, to the extent there's such a thing as typical American accent, maybe there isn't, um, it does better by taking an American speaker's data and adapting to a person. But because my you know, accent or whatever I do is, is relatively non-standard, the commercial systems I was using, it just didn't sound like me. But And, and then Seamus, um, said, oh, let me, my team can build a voice clone of you, just give us some data. Um, and I think in a few days, he trained a voice clone. And it was actually pretty interesting when um, I recorded a bunch of jokes and then he had the voice clone record, you know, say a bunch of AI jokes. And then when I listened to the AI generated messages, the first time I was thinking, like, did I say this or did the voice clone generate this? So even I kind of had a hard time telling, was this me or was this my voice clone? Um, and then uh, uh, when I released on social media, you know, here are four AI jokes, either me or my voice clone. Can you guess who said what? Um, one of my parents guessed right and one of my parents guessed wrong. Oh my gosh, uh, even your I, own I, parents and even yourself, you you couldn't tell the difference. So that's a yeah. that's. Amazing, but also scary. I mean, how are we supposed to trust any any video or audio interaction going forward that the that it's actually that person? Yeah, I think you know. There's one thing that I think would be very helpful, which is um, uh, watermarking. And, and by watermarking, there's, there are various technologies that can embed a hidden code, either in generated text or video or audio, to signify that something was generated by AI. Um, a couple months ago, a few months ago, the White House had a number of large companies make voluntary commitments to AI. Yes, we were part of the that. Thing, oh, you yeah. were? Oh, awesome. All right, so I'm going to say something you may not like then. But uh, candidly, I think all the commitments were fluff except for one, which was watermarking. And so to me, this sets up an interesting test. Let's look back in a few months to see if anyone actually watermarked the content. And I think that uh, honestly, candidly, right now, I'm not feeling very positive that this approach to regulation is working because even since that White House voluntary commitment, I'm seeing multiple companies, not not you all, but other companies take moves that feel like backtracking from a commitment to water. There's companies that make public statements saying, yep, you can't tell what's real or fake. So kind of, well, here's how to manage it. So I've, I'm actually very concerned about the regulatory process in the United States. I think it is... Uh, not going in the right direction. So you feel it should be uh, heavier-handed? I think it should be smarter. Um, in And how? So what I'm seeing in terms of the U.S. approach is um, there's a U.S. and Europe both. I'm very concerned about the degree of regulatory capture. Um, for example, all the time that governments are thinking about how to prevent extinction, uh, which is which has more attention in Europe than in the US. I think that's, you know, frankly, not time well spent. Um, I know in the US there were some um, uh, regulations, uh, you know, looking into preventing AI from having access to nuclear weapons. It's not that I think AI should have access to nuclear weapons. That'd be a really dumb idea. But any time that regulators spent stopping AI from accessing nuclear weapons, which is just not a thing, is time spent preventing a non-problem rather than 
um, accessing, you know, rather than crafting thoughtful regulation that will protect citizens and empower the technology to move forward. And then I've been quite concerned about um, number of players that have been lobbying against open source is dangerous. I feel like there are definitely uh, commercial interests that um, do not like open source, but frankly, in AI, in tech, we all stand on the shoulders of giants, and open source has been one of the most beautiful, powerful sources moving AI forward progress. So anything, you know, I, I feel like some of the pressures to uh, regulate code, put up a lot of requirements before you can open source software. I think that would be very damaging to global innovation. I hope that doesn't come to pass, but I find the lobbying against open source to be quite alarming. And I hope, frankly, I hope, I hope that, I hope those lobbying efforts fail because while open source is not perfect, and yes, someone could download open source software and do something bad with it, uh, fully acknowledge that risk. Um, on average, when open source is released, the number of beneficial use cases, I feel like has almost always vastly surpassed the number of dangerous and harmful use cases. So I, I hope, you know, the United States often um, gets things wrong for a while, but then eventually figures it out. And maybe was it Winston Churchill that once said, democracy is the worst possible way of running a, uh, running a, a, a country, except for all of the alternatives. And I think maybe that applies here. So I'm quite dismayed at what I've been seeing recently. Um, but, you know, most most years, not always, but most years, uh, the U.S. is a relatively well-run democracy. So I hope we'll muddle our way through and, and eventually get to a better trajectory than we seem to be right now. Okay, so cautiously optimistic. And I think you have a, a big role to play in helping educate lawmakers and, and the broader public as you are. In, in LLMs. Andrew, you grew up in a few different places. You, you spent time in Hong Kong, which is also where I'm from, in Singapore, in London. How do you think your upbringing shaped some of the incredible work that you've done? Yeah, so my childhood was, I was born in London, spent a lot of time in Hong Kong and in Singapore growing up. But I, I reflect on um, my good fortune of having had many good teachers. And I think, wait, one of your parents was a teacher. One of both of your both, parents were teachers, yeah. Clara. Oh, cool, yeah. And, but I reflect on um, my good fortune of having had fantastic teachers, um, and that's what made me, um, you know, try and, and fail for a long time, but eventually I got better at um, becoming a good enough teacher to help others. Um, but I think for all my life, I really valued good teaching and, and valued what others did for me and had a desire to, you know, be able to help others in a similar way as well. But yeah, definitely Hong Kong uh, and, and as well as Singapore were places that I, that I appreciated some great teachers. And you, Clara, how has how has growing up, you know, overseas? I I mean, I think just being different and thinking differently and persisting through through challenge and, and feeling comfortable being contrarian. I think it's very important See? for anyone who is an entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, I think, yeah, I remember when I was a kid in school, um, I think my teachers thought I was a good kid because respectful and actually, you know, when there's an unambiguous rule, I mostly followed it. But I was definitely the kid that would do the weird things, you know, like uh, uh, the, 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 if there's a school competition, you know, within the rules, I would be the kid that submitted some weird thing. And sometimes it did not win. Sometimes it was a disaster, but sometimes it was creative. So 
I think I think that 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 unorthodox thing sometimes is a is an effective way. Uh, yes, to certainly do in Silicon Valley. I mean, that is we, we don't uh, create new things by just following the rules and doing the same things that we've been doing before. Uh, that's a good segue to my next question. So we both have kids, and even in the last twelve months, what AI can do now is astonishing relative to what you know humans could do before. How should we educate our kids differently to be prepared in this AI-driven world that we're, we're entering? Yeah, I feel like you know, I, I feel like two things. One is lifelong learning. The world changes so fast. Uh, I think decades ago or centuries ago, when there's a tech disruption, you could kind of keep doing your old job, and the next generation, your children, would then maybe have a different job. Like you can farm all your life, your children, maybe the farming jobs are going down, but now tech changes so fast, you know, we have to change within our lifetimes rather than just have the next generation change. So I think lifelong learning. And then second is, um, I would love to see a future where everyone learns to code. And I did not say this a couple years ago, but with generative AI and local no-code tools and data-centric AI, what I'm seeing is that the ability to build and use custom AI is so low and the value is so high because everyone now has custom data. You know, whether you're big business, small business, technical role, non-technical role, even a high school student running biology experience, everyone has data. So with everyone having custom data and tools to build AI much easier than before, I think the value for individuals to learn just a little bit of coding to use AI uh, is now high enough, and you know, the ROI is high enough. I'd love to see a future where everyone learns to code. And I know that there's this idea that maybe you don't need to learn to code because computers can just understand English or whatever language, native language you speak. I think that has, um, I think computers are getting much better and you know, just tell what you want to do what you want. There's a lot of truth to that. The problem with human languages like English and other languages is they're ambiguous. Which is why even now, when you prompt an LM, do learn to prompt an LM, when you prompt an LM, you don't always get a predictable result. Whereas if you code in Python, that's a very unambiguous language to tell a computer what you want. So I think for the foreseeable future, someone that knows how to use LMs, how to prompt them, and who knows how to write a little bit of code will be able to do much more than someone that only knows how to prompt LMs, even though I think that's exciting too. Uh, but I, I would love to see a future, have an educational system where we empower, just like today, we teach everyone, you know, a first language. For many people, it's English in the US, other languages in different countries. I think it'd be really cool if everyone learns Python as a second language or some other language or some, some other language. Okay. So coding and lifelong learning. And, and on that point of lifelong learning, you know, with all of your various commitments and responsibilities, how do you keep learning? How do you stay current with everything that's going on? Um, I've been fortunate to hang out with enough friends, like like sometimes you, Clara, that help give me a sense of what's happening. Um, and then um, I think Silicon Valley is a very special place. And I apologize to someone listening to this from outside Silicon Valley, but the networks and connections here about generative AI is unlike anywhere else in the world right now. And I find that staying current is easier in general AI in Silicon Valley at this moment. Um, uh, but 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 to be more constructive, you know, so my team, Deep Learning AI, we publish a newsletter called The Batch, where we scour 
the world for what matters in AI right now and try to summarize that every Wednesday. And so I actually count a lot on the editorial team of the batch to help keep me current on what matters in AI right now. now do you have an, actually um, have an editorial team or are you using an LLM to summarize? It's a bunch of humans, yes. It's an editorial team, uh, uh, not LLMs. Uh, and it's, uh, by the way, we tried an LLM, couldn't get into work nearly as well as humans. Maybe the technology will change. How ironic. Yeah, maybe, maybe maybe someday, but not right now. I think right now. Uh, and then I think, yeah, I, I think our personal networks and our communities, uh, wherever you are in the world, right? I think that local communities, sharing people with the same idiosyncratic interests as you, wherever you are in the world. Um, and then I think social media. Oh, and I still try to read research papers regularly. I, I, I know the first few months of the year I was counting, I think I was averaging two research papers a week, um, a little bit fewer now. But I find that just reading a lot. I don't know any other way to do it than that. Yeah, and and you, Clara, what, what what's your advice on keeping current? The hardest for me is is carving the time out. But I try to stay pretty disciplined to have a morning every single week. Sometimes it ends up eating into my weekends, but just where I really block out everything else and I'm just learning. I see. Wow. Oh wow, that's great. You're a real lifelong learner. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to be. Well, one thing I learned is. Uh, uh, on, on my on my um, tablet, on my iPad, I'm pretty good at dumping my backlog of research papers onto my iPad. So whenever a spare moment, you know, um, uh, it's always, yeah, it's just pulled up and I know exactly where to go to read the next research paper. That helps a lot. Well, so amazing to have you on the show. Thank you for your insights today. And thank you for educating so many people around the world on AI. Uh, thanks, Clara. It's always great to chat with you. Some takeaways for me from today's episode. Number one, Andrew's interest in research in AI started with flying helicopters. Number two, that Andrew believes that there's tremendous potential still in unsupervised learning, as well as image processing and running models on the edge, which I agree with. Number three is that those who were on the very inside of AI research never perceived that there was an AI winter. They were continuing to, to find amazing results in their work. And so what has shocked the world over the last year is not a surprise to them. Well, that's all for this week on the Ask More of AI podcast. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter. To learn more about Salesforce AI, join our Ask More of AI newsletter on LinkedIn. See you next time.